Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. In 1788, the German anatomist Johann Mayer recognized that fingerprints were unique to every individual. But it would be more than a century before police departments around the world would begin cataloging and comparing fingerprints to identify criminal suspects. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, advances in forensic science not only intrigued law enforcement, but captured the imaginations of writers as diverse as Mark Twain, Richard Wright, Patricia Highsmith, and Truman Capote, who were captivated by the idea that fingerprints, blood, and other material evidence might allow us to reconstruct crimes, identify those responsible, and prove their guilt. Our guest today is Rachel Watson, Assistant Professor of American Literature from Howard University. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Rachel's been working on a new book that considers literature of the segregation era in light of these new forensic techniques and changing police procedures. In particular, she's interested in how the legal and the literary became interwoven in the struggle over racial identity during the Jim Crow era and the increasing power of the police from the end of the Civil War through the late 1960s. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much. So I want to ask you to begin by explaining the title of your project, Material as Evidence. What, what's behind that title and what's the time period that you're looking at here? So the title refers to the idea of relevance in a way. And it also refers to the idea of evidence itself. And one of the things that I find really interesting about the texts that I'm looking at, and they include detective fiction, but also passing novels, a variety of different novels and stories that stage race as a primary concern. One thing that happens in all of these stories is that evidence itself, particularly criminal evidence, uh, is made the star of the show. So we usually think about novels in that the characters are the star, like the protagonists and even detectives. We think about the detective being the most important force or the most important element of the story. But what I like about these books and these stories is that they actually make the evidence itself the most interesting thing. And so they don't ask for the readers to sympathize with an individual character in quite the same way that we typically think about realist novels, for example, asking readers to do that kind of work. So I'm interested in how evidence appears in a way that makes us have to think about the processes around how ordinary stuff of everyday life gets suddenly animated or appears to get animated so that it might speak for itself in this kind of magical but also scientific way. And this happens with ordinary objects, right? We're familiar with this from the police procedural stories and TV shows and movies where we think an ordinary piece of paper doesn't mean anything, but because of the brilliant detective, we can see that the paper is actually speaking about the event that happened around it or speaking about the person who touched it. But what's interesting to me as well is that the same thing happens with bodies. So this is particularly true with the body of the suspect, for example. So if the suspect is evading police, what he or she needs to do is make sure that his or her body does not speak to the police 
outside of that person's control. And so that person needs to track all of their material traces and try to cover their fingerprints and try to evade police by appearing to disappear. But then good police will be able to look at objects and see the material traces of a human body moving through that space. What I like about this when it comes to race is that it splits the mind and the body in a really fascinating way. So you have the intentionality of the fugitive, for example, but then you have its body, his or her body, moving in the, as this kind of causal force outside of the person's control who seems to own it. And when we think about how race just works as an ideology, it works in a kind of similar way. And this comes out really forcefully during the Jim Crow period. And you see this a lot in passing novels where one's own body appears to be one's enemy as it's being subjected to a social gaze. And this creates drama, it creates tension, it creates suffering, it creates fear, it creates violence. And so this staging of a mind versus a body emerges in the form of the genre itself, from Edgar Allan Poe to Mark Twain to the other authors you mentioned. So give us a, a concrete literary example of how, how the body is getting racialized in, in a crime and how it's being used as evidence in a crime. So one of my favorite examples from the book is a very bizarre and funny and complicated uh, novel written, published in 1932 by a writer uh, named Rudolf Fischer, who was famous at the time for writing short stories mostly in the social realism mode. Uh, he was a, a luminary of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, and then in the early 30s, he took a sharp departure from writing in that mode and decided to write a detective novel, a kind of old-fashioned, in a way, detective novel. So even though it was 1932, he really modeled this novel not after the American hard-boiled detectives who were emerging at, at the time, like Sam Spade, for example, but he modeled the story more after Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. But he set the story in Harlem, and all of the characters are African-American. Rudolph Fisher was also African-American, and he was also a doctor. So he stages this story in which the suspect is a black man uh, and the victim is also a black man and the detectives are black men and the physical evidence of the suspect particularly blood but also fingerprints teeth from a burned corpse all different aspects of the body come under the microscope of the african-american detective who is also a medical doctor so we see this evidence of the body come under the microscopic gaze of the medical detective. And when this physical evidence emerges under the microscope, we see blood being identified not in a way that racializes it, which would be consistent with the dominant hegemony of Jim Crow, in which race lives in the body, it lives in the blood, blackness is in the blood. It's in the facial features, but more essentially it's in the blood. Instead, in this story, the doctor slash detective looks at the blood under the microscope and observes how it's coagulating and explains, we can tell a person's blood by the way it behaves. 
And we can do this to identify individuals regardless of race. So I'm paraphrasing it, but this is the effect of what happens in this scene. And then this happens throughout the book. So that what happens is that we see this staging in which the body indicates nothing more and nothing less than the individual identity of its quote unquote owner, rather than the body appearing to be the seat of racial identity or the seat of some kind of biologized grouping identification. And so this is what was kind of radical and innovative about crime science as it began to get professionalized and formalized in the early part of the 20th century. And it presented a problem for criminology, which really wanted to find types, right? Criminology was a part of eugenics that wanted to find the criminal type, the born criminal. Meanwhile, crime science, the practice of actually solving a crime, wanted to do the opposite. It needed for anyone to have been a criminal. And it needed for bodies to only have the physical evidence and the physical traces of individuality. And so the other thing to keep in mind is that this is a, a time prior to DNA. It's hard almost to think about blood without thinking about DNA, which now we come to associate not only with identifying individuals, but also with identifying ancestries. And so that has been used to kind of tell stories about race and racial identity. But prior to that, even though scientists, some scientists in the early part of the century were trying to find racial information and blood, they were failing. And so instead, the body itself was producing evidence that suggested that race was not a biological fact. And crime science, the actual practice of it for detectives and for police officers, agreed with it. Even though, obviously, the, the history of criminology and crime statistics is a deeply racist and deeply racialized history in the 20th century, these police manuals and detective stories seem to be telling a very different story about race and the body. I'm fascinated by your idea of prosecuting a crime increasingly goes from argumentation in the courtroom to the scientific method and police procedure. The writers that you're dealing with, how do they pick up on that change? So one of the hopes of this kind of science in the early part of the 20th century that emerges explicitly with the development of the lie detector test is that forensics could just allow us to skip over the trial. The certainty of forensics would get rid of all of the complexity and messiness of argumentation and deliberations of juries and allow us to just identify the guilty. But this obviously is not the way we want rule of law to work. Some of these writers though see in this a complicated problem. So for example, Harper Lee in To Kill Mockingbird does something with the end of that book that is actually very surprising compared to the way we typically understand how that story concludes. Even though it's, it has a tragic ending, we, we think of it as having a liberal white hero and the figure of Atticus Finch. But what tends to get obscured is that the person who actually resolves the story is the sheriff. And the way the sheriff resolves this story is by condoning an act of extrajudicial violence against Bob Ewell, who is the murderer or attempts to murder the children. So in that sense, the story seems to end with a victory of order over law. And it's definitely a novel that stages evidence as primary, like the evidence that should have exonerated Tom Robinson is the star of the trial. 
Atticus's closing argument is beautiful and moving, but it's not the thing that should have persuaded the jury. The jury should have been persuaded by the forensic evidence of Tom Robinson being unable to have beaten Mayella and her father actually being the one who was more likely to have given her the bruises that also consisted of the forensic evidence. In this way, I read To Kill Mockingbird as capturing a moment in the early 60s and forecasting a moment into the late 60s and beyond in which police power is getting an infusion of money, funding, authority uh, that would continue for the next several decades. And forensics does seem to bear this out, you know, but it, it's a changing story. The story of how forensics works in these novels changes over the decades of the 20th century. Obviously, there are significant changes during the whole course of the historical periods in which you're working. There are radical changes to constitutional law as the result of changes in police procedure. Can you talk about maybe one of them and how it's reflected in the literary text that you're looking at? One of the cases that I've been reading about that I find super interesting is called Roshim v. California, and it was decided in 1952, and it involves a person being compelled to be a witness against himself by having his blood withdrawn without his consent while he's in the hospital because he was arrested for drunk driving. And so the question in this case is whether evidence of the body deserves the protection of the Fifth Amendment, the protection against self-incrimination. And in 1952, the justices affirm this. The justices say, yes, this deserves to be a matter of self-incrimination protection. But the evidence of the body can be considered testimony in this respect. But then by 1966, in the Schmerber v. California decision, this is reversed. It's changed so that blood can be removed from the suspect's body and made to testify against the individual in a way that is now being protected instead by the Fourth Amendment. And so what we have is a situation in which the justices are debating the definition of personhood itself in relation to the body, but also the definition of testimony and what it means for a body to speak on its own. So we're in this moment in which racial ideology tells us that the body speaks. It speaks blackness and it speaks whiteness. It gives a degree of agency and a degree of, in a very bizarre way, a degree of life or independence to the body. Whereas that's not actually how race works at all, right? Race works as a kind of projection of the interpreter the person looking at the body. Race does not emit from the body. Race is a construction that operates in an incredibly material, incredibly forceful way. What interests me about debates like this in the 1950s is that you see similar things happening in novels and stories by writers who are also grappling with what race means and how it relates to the body and how the body can be understood as speaking independently of the person to which it is attached. And so William Faulkner was doing this in a novel in 1948 called Intruder in the Dust, for example. We have a black man, Lucas Beecham, who is accused of murdering a white man. And Lucas Beecham tasks two children and a white woman 
to go find the evidence that will exonerate him while he basically stands mute in the jail where he's being held pretrial. The children find this evidence, bring it back. It miraculously disperses the lynch mob that has gathered outside the jail. So again, very similar to the scene in To Kill Mockingbird. And so in a sense, there's a desire on the part of these authors, or at least on the part of these texts, to have these black men stand mute while their bodies speak for them and while hard evidence speaks for them. And I think that's another thing that I like about reading race through this lens is that unlike writers like Harper Lee and Truman Capote and William Faulkner, writers like Rudolph Fisher and Richard Wright wanted the common sense of race to get shattered. They wanted their work to make it so that readers could not see race working in the way that they thought they had seen it working before. So Richard Wright says in How Bigger Was Born, I want this novel, he wanted his next novel, meaning Native Son, to be so hard that it could not make a banker's daughter cry and weep over it after she finished reading it. So this is a paraphrase of a very eloquent quote from this essay, but he wanted to write something that was going to really break the sense of reality. And it did, right? Because it was incredibly difficult to sympathize at times with Bigger Thomas. He did not write a protagonist that was going to make us feel at ease or make us feel that we were looking at a kind of variety of social order. Instead, what he did was he made the social order as it was look like a crime scene. And so the difference is that when you look at a crime scene, you don't think that you're looking at a variety of human behavior that could be compared to other varieties of human behavior. The epistemological demands of a crime scene are completely different. You want to spring into action to find out what happened to cause this brutality and violence. And this is the mode, one of the things about the crime genre that attracted Richard Wright to it in the context of Jim Crow. There's been a fascination in television as well. But do you feel that shows like CSI, uh, Law and Order, et cetera, are delving into racial aspects to the degree that uh, literary texts have? One of the tricky things about TV shows like CSI and, and Law and Order, particularly something like Law and Order, is that they, they present a picture of the social world that does not obtain. So one of the more recent statistics that I've seen suggests that approximately 97% of people who are incarcerated did not receive a trial. And that's because they are incarcerated as a result of a plea deal. This is one kind of hardcore example of what we're seeing in terms of the stakes of skipping over the deliberative process. And when we look at something like CSI or law and order, we feel, first of all, that people are still getting trials, which they're not. But then with something like a show like CSI or Cold Case Files, it makes the power of evidence feel natural in a way that can be troubling and can naturalize the rates of incarceration that we see right now. On the other hand, I do think that there's something that is potentially exciting and transgressive about a genre that asks you to constantly be putting the world around you into question. One of the easy ways to understand this is to think about what makes a detective story successful is that you can't have the most likely suspect do it, right? It has to be a surprise. And so in order to get to that moment of surprise, 
the story has to wade through and engage with all kinds of assumptions about identity, about tendencies, about intentionality, about typologies, and then it has to surprise you with it. And so in this period of time in which you're reading the story or, or watching the movie, you're held in a moment in a kind of space in which you're willing to put aside the typologies that typically make up your naturalized sense of the social world. So I'm going to conclude with a more personal question. Why this project? What drove you to this project? And how is it going to contribute to the cause of justice in the world? First of all, I, I worked before my um, decision to study literature and become a professor. I worked, I was lucky enough to work at a civil rights law firm where I was put to the task, more or less, of gathering evidence on behalf of clients who had been discriminated against at work. And I wanted to hang on to this conviction and to this set of ideals about civil rights law. And when I started reading more African-American literature of the 20th century and of the late 19th century, I started getting really interested in this history. And so I started kind of diving into it. And it was really the moment when I read Francis Galton, his book on fingerprint patterns from 1892, I think it was first published, where Francis Galton, famously the father of eugenics, comes to a moment at the end of this incredibly exhaustive study where he's desperately trying to find the evidence of racial typologies and fingerprint patterns, and then has to admit that he has failed. He's not finding what he's looking for, that the evidence is not bearing out his fantasy. And then because of his scientific ethic, I suppose, he has to admit that. And then to discover that Mark Twain read that book just a few weeks before he wrote Puddinghead Wilson, which stages fingerprint evidence being used to identify an individual and to do it in the courtroom decades before that had ever actually happened. And then in his story, it also unveils the true quote unquote racial identity of the person. But really that novel is a, he called it a tragic farce. He dramatizes the absurdity of the racial fantasy, the absurdity of racial difference, the absurdity of the idea of identity living in the blood, living in what you are rather than what you do. That was really the moment that kind of kickstarted my interest in this project to see how forensic science seemed to be making an argument about the body that cut directly against the common sense of Jim Crow and the common sense that would undergird the Plessy v. Ferguson decision. Well, thank you, Rachel Watson. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.